Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Over the course of the past year, and I know we talk about all of the changes that we've experienced over the past year all the time, but, you know, there have been so many big changes in medicine because of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And one thing that has really increased is the use of telehealth or virtual visits, which have been very useful in maintaining medical visits during this time. Absolutely. And today we're joined by Dr. Sophia Jang. She's a pediatric resident here at UC Davis Children's Hospital and soon-to-be nephrology fellow at UCSF. Um, And she has a specific interest in this new important tool of telemedicine. Dr. Zhang, thank you so much for joining us on Kids Considered today. Thanks so much for that warm welcome, and thanks so much for having me. So can you just define for us what telehealth or telemedicine is? So telehealth is a tool that can help connect your child to a variety of healthcare services, when physical distance is a factor between your child and his or her healthcare provider. You might have heard the terms telehealth and telemedicine used interchangeably and might have wondered what the difference is. So that difference is that telemedicine applies only to clinical services, while telehealth involves non-clinical applications, um, such as provider training. Telehealth might involve multiple different technologies, um, such as live video conferencing, photo transfer, and special diagnostic tools to provide medical care. And you might have already had experience with telemedicine if you've used your clinic's patient portal to send a picture of your child's rash to your pediatrician, or maybe you've even had a video call with your pediatrician already. Oh, yeah. Getting lots of rashes and pictures all the time. Right. It's really good for rashes, isn't it? (laughs) It is. It is. So I have to be honest, I'd rarely used telemedicine before the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd used it a few times, but it always just seemed like a hassle to learn all about the different buttons that you need to do (laughs) and how to connect. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'm just old and, you know, can't can't adjust to anything (laughs) new. But how long has telemedicine been around for? Yeah, so even though um, COVID has really accelerated and normalized adoption of telemedicine, services. It's actually been around for even longer than you've been around, Dr. Dean. (laughs) Um, And so it's been around in more rudimentary forms since at least the late 1800s. In 1879, The Lancet, which is one of the oldest and best-known medical journals, published a paper about using the telephone to reduce the number of unnecessary office visits. And the telephone had only been around for three years at that time. You can also find audio clips from the early 1900s featuring doctors diagnosing colon patients over the radio. (laughs) I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I understand using the phone. We've used the phone for a long time to kind of triage patients based on their symptoms and see if they need to come in for a visit. There's a lot of nurse triage lines that patients can call into. But when did we start using things like like video, like seeing people face to face or, or more advanced tools? Yeah, so what we think about with telemedicine today, so that visual audio platform that's synchronized, that lies really at the heart of telemedicine today, first came about in 1955 with um, a psychiatrist named Dr. Cecil Whitson at the Nebraska uh, Psychiatric Institute in Omaha. And he created the first closed-circuit television network and worked with the Bell Telephone Company um, to create audio channels between the Institute and four other states. So the goal of this project 
I guess, rather than, you know, to do what we think about today, which is to provide um, education and um, also resources, visits with patients was more uh, from a provider standpoint to broadcast lectures, um, in this case, to improve psychiatric education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was first created to connect healthcare providers to one another. But nowadays, one of the best things about telemedicine or virtual visits is it can help ease the burden of families who live far away. And we see this at our hospital since many of our patients are from rural Northern California, many hours drive away from Sacramento. Absolutely. So one of the biggest driving forces for pediatric telehealth advances in today's times um, has been the delivery of healthcare to remote rural areas, just as you were saying. Um, and so many of these areas have very limited access to pediatric healthcare providers, especially subspecialists like Dr. Dean. So... Some of the kids that we see here at UC Davis, as you were saying, like, um, you know, especially I've seen a lot of kids who have type 1 diabetes who do have to drive, you know, up to three hours away in order to have a visit with their endocrinologist. And so if you just think about that, that's a six hour round trip during a weekday. For like an hour long visit, which is just mm -hmm. so crazy. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, it is. It is not. So that means that you force patients to take the whole day off of work. And you also have kids missing school. Um, so you know, not to mention you have to try to keep all everybody sane during that really lengthy drive. I think you guys actually have a pretty good podcast on some uh, that includes great tips uh, from July 2019 on this. But of course, a lot of families don't have the resources to do this. Um, and that results in even more heightened healthcare disparities in these rural areas, which already have higher prevalences of chronic disease. It's really true. And that's why we really, even pre-COVID, were pushing providers to ramp up their abilities to perform telehealth and provide virtual visits to families. But um, we've kind of gotten a kick in the bottom over the last year to get us all going on this. So tell me how telemedicine has changed in the face of COVID over the last year. Yes. We all know there are very special circumstances that have surrounded 2020 and 2021. And that's prompted a lot of healthcare consumers, probably including a good number of our listeners today, to seek virtual care for the first time. So now that many more clinics are set up um, and there's that infrastructure to conduct video visits, it's fair to assume that this video visit format's here to stay, even in that hopefully not so far away post-pandemic era. So Doximity, which is one of our leading professional healthcare networks, uh, published a paper um, in 2020, um, the State of Telemedicine Reports, does say that there's a 38% increase in physician adoption of telemedicine um, between 2019 and 2020. Um, so that's a pretty drastic increase. And I think that these numbers will only continue to go up. Yeah, it's really amazing because I know that there was always a push to increase telemedicine visits, but it was like, let's see if we can go from like 2% to 4% or something, you know? And so this is like so right that COVID really forced all of us in the medical field to get comfortable with video visits very quickly. And initially we saw a big decrease in in-person visits. Yeah, so that's absolutely right. Um, so many of you listeners out there probably you did opt to defer your child's annual checkup in the midst of the pandemic, like many other parents. Um, in fact, the weeks following the initial lockdown last March, all in-person ambulatory care visits dropped by 60%. Um, so although the number of telemedicine visits did increase by a lot, um, it did not by any means make up for the total deficit of healthcare visits. So what I find really astonishing is that even the number of emergency visits 
And I mean, we definitely saw this in peds, but I think especially for our adult health colleagues, you know, the number of visits for even heart attacks and strokes dropped, um, which is crazy because I'm sure that there wasn't actually a decrease in those numbers and that patients were just so scared um, to come in because that risk of getting COVID um, to them was greater than, you know, like the uh, significant morbidity and even mortality that they could face with those serious conditions. And since the pandemic started, there have been studies that have emerged just looking at decreased healthcare utilization on pediatric outcomes. So papers published in the U.S. and Europe report that there have been multiple cases of delayed cancer diagnoses and also a handful of fatalities caused by things such as um, late detection management of diabetic ketoacidosis, which is actually one of the more common presentations that we see um, among peds. Uh, patients who have a new diagnosis of diabetes, and it's typically a really treatable condition. So it's very unfortunate. Yeah, I have seen this and it's really scary, right? Like, just like you mentioned, diabetes, such a treatable condition. Um, And in my own practice, I've seen instead of missing the scary diagnoses, you know, we're seeing things like delayed diagnosis for developmental delays. So normally when we're seeing kids, you know, at nine months, 12 months, 15 months. If you miss one of those, you can really miss out on a a really critical time to intervene if a kid has speech delay or something else. So that's been really one of the toughest parts of the pandemic for me is really, you know, encouraging parents that they don't need to be scared and to come in for these really important checkups. Mm -hmm. And that's where early intervention really makes a difference too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, one concern that many families have with telemedicine is you can't actually do a physical examination of the child over uh, video visits. I guess that's kind of stating the obvious, but, (laughs) you know, many parents wonder if you can gather enough information to really make an accurate diagnosis when there is a problem. Yeah, and I think that's a very legitimate concern. Um, Obviously, right now, we don't have the tools to, like, reach in, um, you know, somehow through technology and like listen to your child's heart because when you do pay a visit to the doctor I think it's um, very common to kind of expect that at the very minimum you know like your doctor like puts her stethoscope over like your child's chest and then listens to the heart and lungs Um, but in reality a lot of the work in diagnosis is done through what we call history taking and so that's collecting the story of what's happened leading up to you coming or you bring your child into the office with a certain complaints and actually a carefully conducted interview should be able to at least determine the presence of what we call red flag symptoms in the medical world, um, which is symptoms that point toward a serious underlying condition needing uh, further evaluation. So an example of this might be, you know, if there's a toddler who used to be able to walk and now can't walk anymore, that could point to something that's very serious, like a brain tumor or infection of, you know, the bones or joints of the legs. But um, a lot of what we do can be done, you know, just through talking. Absolutely. And in addition to that important history, you know, even though we can't listen to the heart and lungs, we can still gain valuable clues about what your child looks like over the video. And based on, you know, just based on your child's general appearance, so like how tired or responsive your child is or how hard he's working to breathe, we can really triage what kind of level of care um, your child needs. So, of course, there are limitations to what could be done through video. So, you know, besides having an incomplete physical exam, we also have to make do without things like vital signs, um, especially things like blood pressure, oxygen saturation. 
and other tools that we do normally use to help um, aid in the diagnosis, like blood work or imaging. But even though we don't have these pieces, sometimes it is perfectly fine in a lot of outpatient cases to not have these. Um, but you know, for other cases, they could be very essential. So this is a good place to talk about what visits are appropriate for telemedicine and then which should be scheduled in person and those that really need a physical examination, for example. Yeah. Can we please talk about this? Because there's nothing worse than seeing on my schedule when I walk in for the day, like chief complaint, severe abdominal pain, and then it's a video visit. That really gets me. Yeah, I definitely have those. Going back to what we talked about earlier about, you know, rashes, um, sending pictures of rashes, that's actually one of the most widely uh, studied uses of telemedicine in the pediatric world, this as well as psychiatry. Studies looking at the congruence of diagnoses and management um, relating to skin conditions, this show a high rate of agreement between um, visits that are telemedicine and in person. And evidence from psychiatry shows that um, telepsychiatry is just as effective as, and even in some cases, superior to in-person care, which I thought was pretty surprising. But when you stop and think about it, you know, like your kids who have ADHD or developmental disabilities, um, it is oftentimes better to evaluate those kids in their natural setting, like a home, because once you pull them into the office, there's so many different distracting and stimulating factors that could really affect your exam. Mm -hmm. This is so true and something I'm happy you brought up because even for kids that, you know, I'm not seeing for a developmental or psychiatry related concern, I just love like seeing them in their own environment, like meeting the family dog and seeing their art projects that they're showing me. And these days, like actually getting to see the bottom half of the parents' faces without (laughs) their mask on. (laughs) Um, So that has been really a joy. And I think that the mental health follow-up specifically for teenagers and medication monitoring for ADHD, that kind of stuff has been so, so nice to be able to do that through telemedicine. Yeah. And I'm sure they also appreciate seeing, hopefully, seeing the bottom half of our faces <laughs> as well. Because, yes. um, you know, like when we go into the room, we look so scary, too, with like the, the face gear on. Um, and yeah, there's just a lot of PPE. Uh, but telemedicine is even good for routine follow-up of common chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, and obesity, um, where continued patient education is key. And that's all been shown to be effectively done through virtual visits. Um, With regards to, you know, what we've been talking about, general pediatric problems, um, the majority of cold-like symptoms, you know, like if your child has a fever or a cough or runny nose, those could all be seen virtually. And it's even encouraged because, you know, especially in today's um, times, there's worry about, you know, contagion and spread of um, COVID or other viruses um, within the clinic setting. And if indicated, um, COVID and flu tests can always be arranged to be done after the virtual visit. And of course, you know, if your child's having any concerning symptoms like difficulty breathing or if, um, you know, they're vomiting repeatedly and any changes in how their mentation is, those are cases for which he or she needs to be seen by a healthcare provider right away and should not be done through video visit. Right. So at our clinic specifically, like I can see someone for a video visit for fever, let's say, or nausea, and then get them scheduled for a COVID and flu test really later that day or the next day, which has been really useful. And there are cases, you're right, even if we are worried for COVID or flu or something that is more contagious, that they do need to be seen in person still because we may want to look in their ear and make sure it's not an ear infection or 
or, you know, it just doesn't sound quite right. And that's totally okay. You can still come to the office, but you do have to make sure that you alert the office staff because a lot of places these days are having their own door for um, like a sick door and making sure that you're not exposing other well children or their own hours. So we only see sick patients during certain hours to make sure that we can clean in between for our well visits. So yes, exactly. I think that that definitely cold-like symptoms can be done through a virtual visit really well. Mm -hmm. So what visits are better scheduled for in-person? Dr. Lena, you mentioned like abdominal pain is something that you want to see as an in-person visit. Yeah. So besides those, um, you know, complaints where a physical exam is key, like, you know, if a kid comes in with abdominal pain, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all well child checks be done in person whenever possible. And this is especially important for those newborn checks because uh, this is such a high risk time for both the parents and for the baby. Any visits that involve routine vaccination, um, which includes almost, you know, all well child visits in children under the age of two. Uh, should also be in person. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the well child checks and the immunization schedule really go hand in hand and they're really important. And we noted that rates of routine immunization for all children less than 18 years of age fell by over 20% after all the emergency lockdowns last March. So this really increases the risk of these harmful vaccine-preventable disease outbreaks. And it's especially important as we move towards reopening to make sure that kids are immune and that we don't get outbreaks. Mm -hmm. And you can refer to the childhood immunization schedule on the Center for Disease Control's website, the CDC. Um, You may also have like an online portal through your pediatrician, like a MyChart account. And those are really nice because they can show you what your child is due for. And even though it might be appropriate for older children to see, you know, the pediatrician virtually uh, for that annual checkup, Um, Still, the recommendation is that whenever possible, so whenever conditions allow, you bring your uh, your teen in for an in-person visit as well, you know, so that we could do that physical exam and make sure uh, everything's well there. I've been asked by many families at my clinic, when is a safe time to return to the pediatrician's office for well-child care? And I would say that right now is a great time. We're seeing significant declines in COVID-19. Most of the providers have been immunized against COVID-19. And so it is a really good time to schedule your well-child care. And don't be shy about calling the clinic and asking what kind of precautions they're taking. What is their cleaning techniques like? Are they separating their well and sick visits? And we know that overall, even in the peak of the pandemic, when we're seeing really high case rates in hospital and in clinic transmission remained low because of all of the precautions we've been taking. So definitely, definitely schedule your well child care. Yeah, and I think Dr. Lena and I have discussed during our COVID special episodes that we feel very comfortable in the healthcare settings, that we feel very safe, that we have protocols in place. And now it's even safer with the you know, very large proportion of the healthcare workers are, are vaccinated. So we feel that, that it's a very safe place to be, much, much safer than the grocery store, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So let's say your child has a rash and you're finding you're you're just still finding it hard to bring her to the pediatrician's office because you can't find anybody to take care of maybe the brothers or sisters or something like that. So maybe, you know, you want to give telemedicine a try. Let's talk about what makes a successful virtual visit. 
Yes. So you definitely want to get the instructions on setting up the video visit well ahead of the appointment time. So this means that you want to create an account through your medical chart or your online portal. And sometimes you have to download another app in order for it to be successful, like on your phone or your computer. At most clinics, there will be a person that can help walk you through this or an IT person that can help walk you through some troubleshooting. And once you're ready to go, definitely log into the visit at your scheduled time. Um, so many places may give you like a 10 or 15 minute buffer of, of the time that you can log into that video visit. And I always like to say, just like in person, you know, um, I take full responsibility for sometimes running a little bit behind schedule, although obviously not ideal. So you may need to stay logged into your video visit for, you know, 15 minutes or so after your scheduled time because your doctor may still be running a little bit behind. If you have concerns and you've been on there for a while, definitely call the office to check in. Yes, please do that. Um, and, you know, I'm also guilty of running significantly behind schedule sometimes and uh, I'm often surprised by like, oh, the you know patient checked in five minutes ago, but now they've left. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate you guys waiting. Um, but there are some items that you could do um, actually ahead of the visit um, that could help it run more smoothly. So if, you know, if this is a visit that has to do with a rash or something where physical inspection is key, then it's really helpful for us if you guys take a picture of that rash or whatever it is and send it to the pediatrician's office ahead of time. And a lot of clinics do have a secure patient portal that can be used for transfer of things like photos. So uh, it is best to share media that way if they have that. And make sure you have your child with you. It's all about them. And the pediatrician may want to ask to see something about the child or ask the child directly something depending on their age. Most people do this at home. That's the usually more controlled environment that they have privacy. But if not at home, I've had patients do it from their car. Um, just make sure you're in a secure environment where, you know, no one who would not be part of an in-person visit is present. Like you wouldn't want to do it at like a coffee shop, for example. That would be pretty awkward. And you want to be somewhere quiet that has good lighting. And um, generally, people want to have a good internet connection, although I've seen people do it over their cell network, too, if that's good enough. And then you want to, um, we may ask you to visually inspect a certain part of your child. So that might say, you know, pull up their shirt. We want to see the rash or the onesie or something like that. We might want to look at the breathing and other things. So there's a surprising amount of of information that we can gather just by looking and without, you know, actually touching the patient. Sometimes it's useful to have a flashlight um, available in case it, the lighting's dark to evaluate a rash or look in the throat or something like that. Yeah, and there are a lot of um, vital signs that you can take yourself to report to your doctor. So if you have a household scale, taking your child's weight, regardless of whether it's, you know, a visit for um, sickness or whether it's like a well-child visit, it could help us to detect, you know, high-risk weight trends or direct dosing for medication, um, which is an important one. So if this is a sick visit too, using a thermometer to take your child's temperature can also help us um, in guiding diagnosis and management of whatever your child has. And then, you know, these are even more advanced things that you could do, but um, counting your child's pulse or breaths over 30 seconds or a minute. Um, you know, for 30 seconds, we just multiply by two. Um, it could also be really helpful for a sick visit, um, but only if you're comfortable with doing this. 
And if the visit is with a teenager, be prepared for us to ask you to step out of the room, just like we do at a normal wild child check, because there's some things that we need to talk about in confidentiality with the teen. Mm-hmm. And then also be ready to take follow-up steps. Um, your pediatrician may recommend additional things to do. So they may say, um, we need you to come in for an in-person visit because we need to check something or, you know, I'm worried about you, so you need to go to the emergency room. Or you need to make an appointment for laboratory tests um, or x-rays or schedule a follow-up visit. Yeah, and um, I think one of the key things about video visits is being flexible, you know, on whatever the outcomes are, because oftentimes, you know, it's good use as a screening tool for us as well and a triaging tool um, to do whatever is safest for your child. You know, even though more and more offices are offering video visits, um, you know, they're not everywhere yet, and your pediatrician's office might not have telemedicine capacity it's a good idea to talk to your pediatrician before initiating any kind of telemedicine communication if this is something that you're interested in doing. Because all care, even through telemedicine, should be integrated with care from your child's usual medical home. And your child's pediatrician should be in direct communication with telehealth providers. Right, absolutely. Because we're seeing even urgent cares and things like that move towards this. So it's always preferable to go to your primary doctor if possible, because they know your child well. So you know, it's useful within the medical home, definitely. Some families I work with worry about privacy with telemedicine. So obviously, Dr. Dean mentioned you don't want to do this in a coffee shop because that would be an obvious violation of your privacy. But how about like um, security of, of the technology or other things? Do we have to worry about that? So there are very strict guidelines um, that are established under HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, that uh, make sure that there, it, that there are a lot of security measures um, revolving around telemedicine. And so I think that our telehealth consumers um, should rest assured that um, telemedicine platforms do m- meet these strict guidelines. And there are also provisions under this law that specifically protect and ensure safe handling of electronically transmitted protective health information. So virtual health visits are just one way in which we are moving more and more towards a model of continuous health care that's integrated into our daily lives. So rather than having health care relegated to specific times of the year when you visit your doctor's office, we'll likely see more widespread use of mobile health monitors and electronic-based applications that send health data metrics to our medical providers. And many people already have this with their smartwatches and and other devices. So there's um, really some exciting developments in the field of home medical technology, and maybe we should talk about that in another episode sometime. I think that's a great idea. So we hope that this episode has been helpful in answering the questions you may have had about using telemedicine. I literally was on the phone with my dad yesterday, and he was like, I canceled my follow-up labs in-person doctor's appointment. I just don't see why I have to do it. And I'm like, why don't you schedule a video visit? And he he looked at me like, he was like, can I just call him on the phone? So I think we still have some work to do getting the older generation wrapped around this topic. But it is so useful, so important. So I would encourage everybody to give it a try. We would like to thank Dr. Jang for leading our discussion today around telemedicine. We've included some links on our website discussing telemedicine and how to use it effectively. And we hope that we've illustrated that it can be a really powerful tool in supplementing your child's health care, but it does not replace your regular doctor's visit, well checks, 
you know, making sure we're monitoring weight and vitals and developmental surveillance. So let's summarize some of the main points from today's discussion. Telemedicine or telehealth refers to using electronic technology for facilitating healthcare, including information sharing, digital patient monitoring, and provider patient education. While telemedicine with phones have been around for a long time, over the last decade, or even more so over the last year, virtual visits have increased in popularity with face-to-face interaction. So video visits can be great alternatives for following up behavioral mental health concerns, mild colds or upper respiratory infections, rashes or other skin conditions, uh, medical medication, and much more. But they do not replace newborn visits, well-child visits, and when critical immunizations are due. Um, And then they also don't replace some chief complaints or issues that may require a more in-depth physical exam, like neurologic concerns, weakness, um, really bad headache, or abdominal pain. Once you are scheduled for your telehealth uh, appointment, make sure that you have all of the software downloaded correctly and to log in at the correct time and have your child with you under some good lighting. All telemedicine visits are protected health information, just like your in-person visits. And if you have questions about if a video visit is appropriate for your child, then call the office and ask for some assistance. And that reminds me of a telehealth joke. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear it. Okay, so a man makes an urgent telemedicine appointment. And when the doctor gets on, the man says, my wife is pregnant and her contractions are 10 minutes apart. What should I do? (laughs) And the doctor says, is this her first child? And the man says, no, you idiot. This is her husband. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) That is a good one. (laughs) Have um, either of you been on the other end of a telehealth visit, you know, as a patient? I have actually not because I'm so bad at actually seeking medical care (laughs) in the first place and have been... Um, knock on wood, very healthy. I usually go to my in-person physical once a year and, and get labs done and things like that. And I did did go into my physical this year, even during the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. I've used the my chart, the electronic um, communication. Oh, yeah. I've certainly done that several times and, and said like, you know, here's what's happening. Should I come in? Should I not come in? I don't know. Do I need a referral? What What's the best thing to do for this? Yes. I mean, we all know those in my chart messages or um, in basket messages, you know, a lot of doctors say, oh my gosh, I get so many of them and it can be a burden, but I really love it for communicating with families and being able to reassure them about questions that they may have with specifically with the newborns. We know there are a lot of questions and and being able to see some of those pictures and things that definitely do not require a visit, just require a little bit of reassurance. I guess I'm sort of sensitive to the efficiency issue because, you know, I love it when a parent like sends me a message and, and, and I say, oh, you know, this is the next step to do. And I think I'm so glad that they communicated that way. I mean, they could have made an appointment. They could have like driven here. It could have been like at a half hour or one hour slot or something like that. And I'm thinking this is just so much more efficient to do it this way. And I, you know, and, and I would have said the exact same thing. And ironically, I also haven't done um, any telemedicine visits myself, but I've, um, you know, done what Dr. Dean was talking about, you know, just uh, communicating with my healthcare provider over the secure messaging. And that has been super helpful, I think, especially, you know, since 
we're kind of all on a crunch in terms of our work day. <laughs> Dr. Lena, you mentioned how you like to see the patients, like their house and the pets and stuff <laughs> like that. And that reminds me, just yesterday I was doing a telemedicine visit and I was talking to the, the patient and the mother and then the cat walks by in the background <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, you know, I forgot to mention about, you know, we, we had discussed earlier, like, could this be cat scratch disease? <laughs> and so then, and then I was going, oh, there's the... Yeah, there's the cat, by the way, you know, the test for cat scratch disease. Let's talk about that. Oh, that's funny. It was a little clue. Did you guess you asked the cat how old it was? <laughs> I'd, I'd asked before, yeah. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 